So this is just a short three weeks on Great Commission kind of stuff. And a couple of weeks ago, we talked about being in awe by the grandeur of who God is. And last week, about being a nobody ourselves. And so tonight, I want to kind of draw all this together. And I'll tell you the, the inspiration for tonight and, and some of the content and some of the areas of thought comes from um, what's kind of been happening in our denomination. And some of you don't even know what our denomination is or care what it is, and that's okay. Um, but we were part of the Southern Baptist Convention and um, a couple of years ago in New Orleans, 2012, at the National Convention, there was a vote taken to allow churches to use the designation that they were a Southern Baptist church or a Great Commission Baptist church. And there are lots of reasons for that. There were places, uh, for instance, um, Freddie T., who was here a few weeks ago and spoke, was one of those that was really for the Great Commission description because when you're in New York City and you're trying to plant churches and you tell them we're Southern Baptist, it doesn't kind of go over as well in New York City as it does in Conyers, Georgia. All right? I mean, just truth. And so there's some practical terms. Uh, there are some kind of historical ramifications of that name and the reason that we're called Southern Baptists that people were distancing themselves from. And so they brought this commission, this recommendation forth and it passed 53 to 47%. Overwhelming majority, right? At least in a presidential election it's considered that these days. And so it doesn't mean that they changed the name. It just meant that if they are in a place where they're working in a difficult area or a northern area, that they can use the phrase Great Commission Baptist, and it's the same idea, okay? And I was reading some things from uh, the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary um, who said, and I thought this was interesting, he said the issue is not will we be called Great Commission Baptist. The issue is will we be Great Commission Baptist? Will we, as we move forward in the 21st century, be churches that bear the marks of people serving faithfully King Jesus as He reclaims that which is rightly belongs to Him? Or will we find ourselves sitting on the sidelines, fading off in the scene in distraction, division, and disobedience? Will we pine for better days in the past? Or will we plead with our God to give us our best days in the future for His glory and for our good? got me thinking about this concept of what does it mean to be someone that's a great commission believer. So tonight we're going to talk about six marks. Now let me start with a, a story for you. It's of a guy named James Frazier. And he was a missionary, but that's not how he started. He started a promising career as an engineer and a concert pianist. Now those necessarily don't go together always, but he was both. One day he was reading a little booklet called Do Not Say, and he decided after reading that booklet that he would give up his career as an engineer, he would give up being a concert pianist, and he was going to go to an unreached, unengaged people group called the Lisu people of China, and he was going to declare to them who Jesus was. And this is what he said. A command has been given. This is what he read. Go ye to all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It has not been obeyed. More than half the people in the world have not yet heard the gospel. What are we to say to this? Surely it concerns us Christians seriously 
For we are the people who are responsible. If our master returned today to find millions of people unevangelized and looked as of course he would to us for an explanation, I cannot imagine what explanation we have to give. Of one thing I am certain, most of the excuses we are accustomed to making with such good conscience now would be wholly unacceptable then. Those words read by James Frazier caused him to leave England where he was an engineer and pianist and run to China where he gave the rest of his life as a missionary to the Lisu people, asking them to come to the Lord, to exalt the Lamb, and to be redeemed by the blood that he had already shed. Tonight I want to look at Romans chapter 15 because in Romans chapter 15, Paul is going to give us six characteristics of people that are serious about fulfilling the Great Commission. This starts in verse 14. It says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to the minister of Christ Jesus, to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of Christ, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power and signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. That is the reason why I have often been hindered from coming to you, but now, since I am no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Six things that we see in that passage, and you can fill in the blanks there as we kind of read along. If you don't get them, I'll give them to you afterwards. They're not going to be on the screen or anything. The first one is, people that are serious about the Great Commission, they keep their focus on the most important things while still doing many good things. They keep their focus on the most important things while still doing many good things. Now, Paul was confident. Who's he writing the letter of Romans to? The Romans. There you go. That's not hard, right? It's writing to people that lived in Rome, all right? Try to throw one out to you at least that you'll get, all right? So he's writing this book to the Romans, and he's confident that the Romans are doing good work. In verse 14, he notes that they're full of goodness, that they're filled with knowledge, and they're able to instruct or admonish one another. They had lives of good living and good theology. What they believed and how they lived mattered and matched up. And if either got off course, they were able to help one another get kind of moving back in the right direction. And then there's that word, but... The Holman Christian Standard, some of you have that, says, nevertheless, Paul could write them, nevertheless, I have a very bold reminder for you. Part of that is because Paul knew that the good is many times the greatest danger to the best. Good enough 
is sometimes our greatest enemy to doing great things. We just kind of settle. So Paul says, you've done a lot of good stuff, full of goodness, filled with knowledge, able to instruct. But in grace, he reminds them that which they already knew, that his calling and their calling were to be ministers to the Gentiles. Now, to be honest with you, Gentiles is an inadequate translation there. The word there is ethne, which is interesting because it's the exact same word that comes in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, where Jesus says, I want you to go to all ethne, nations. And so the, here is not just Jews or Gentiles. What he's saying is our goal is to go to every nation. It doesn't mean political or national boundaries. It means people groups. It means people with distinct language, distinct culture, distinct identity. Now, now, Here's the latest numbers, okay? And you've got them on your sheet, I think, there. Today we know that there are almost 16,600 distinctive people groups in the world. Now, there may be hundreds in a country, political country. And according to the Joshua Project, which is an online project and a research project for missions, over 7,100 of those are unreached. Now, if you look at that, that's, that's not quite half. So that number is better than the next one. International Mission Board tells us that there are almost 7 billion on the planet, or around 7 billion on the planet. I think we've actually gone a little past that. But when these numbers were done, that's what it was. Of that, 3.7 billion do not have access to the gospel. More than half. A current rate says that 1.27 billion people living on the earth right now have never and will never hear the name of Jesus in their lifetime if things just continue like they are. That means that they'll be born, live, die, and go to an eternity separated from God never once hearing a clear presentation of the gospel. 1.27 billion. That means that you and I could be dropped in locations around this world from a parachute or from a helicopter with a parachute and we could walk days, weeks, months and never encounter a church or even a fellow believer. Now, as a church, we do lots of good things. Lots of good things. Man, we could sit here if I said, How many, what are some good things we do? We could list them for a while. But we must never take our, our focus off the most important things. We must keep our focus on the Great Commission. There's a Baptist theologian named Carl F.H. Henry said, The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. Otherwise, it's not good news at all. Or John Falconer once said, I have but one candle of life to burn, and I would rather burn out in a land filled with darkness than in a land flooded with light. He said, Romans, you're doing some good stuff. You've got good knowledge. You help one another. Don't forget the main thing, the most important. Second thing is, these kind of Christians see the ministry of bringing the nations to Jesus as offerings of worship to the triune God. You know what triune God there means? Trinity, the three in one God. They see 
bringing the nations to Jesus as part of our offering of worship to him. Now, um, let me just kind of talk for a minute about theology and missions, because sometimes people say theology, the study of God, the discipleship, the going deep with God is in opposition to the going out and sharing the gospel. But the truth is they must stay joined at the hip. It's several reasons why. First of all, the greatest missionary who ever lived was also the greatest theologian who ever lived. His name was Jesus. Okay. Secondly, the greatest Christian theologian, the one after Jesus, who ever lived, was also the greatest Christian missionary who ever lived, and his name was Paul. And he was a missionary before he became a writing theologian. So when you're reading his theology, which that's what you're reading when you read Romans, in fact, the first part of Romans is some of the greatest theology that has ever been written. When you're reading that, you're reading a missionary writing it. Indeed, a major purpose of Paul writing Romans was to get him to help get the gospel to Spain. Now, here's the reason. Okay? This is why Paul was so dedicated to Spain. And I love this passion from him. All right? When Jesus gives his great commission, in Matthew chapter 28, he says, I need you to go to Jerusalem, Judea, or excuse me, in Acts 1, 8, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and ends of the earth. Okay? If you pulled out a map in Paul's day, okay? now, they didn't have Google Maps, right? They didn't have Apple Maps. They didn't have any kind of electronic maps. They would have been these old cartography, okay? Hand-drawn maps. If you pulled out a map in Paul's day, the only thing that would have been on it would have been Africa, Europe, and Asia. Because that's where they lived. North America had not been discovered by this people yet. Not, not that it wasn't here and there weren't people here, but... By this people, they had not been discovered. And there was a place. You, you remember, some of you are going to have to think real hard, all right? If you, if you get that furled look on your face, I'll know you're really thinking. If you remember the map of Europe, how it comes around the Mediterranean Sea, and it goes up into this area, and it comes out, and England's kind of up here. Don't you all love when I do hand graphs and hand maps? Okay, And then down here in this area is Spain, right? And it's hanging over the edge. Like it's the tip of... Europe. There was a place on the tip of the edge of Spain that was named, the city was called the ends of the earth. On their map, that's what it would have said. And so Paul thinks, Jesus said, I'm supposed to go to the ends of the earth. Guess where I'm going? What I love about Paul is he doesn't say they'll get there someday. He thinks I got to get there. Paul, you're in chains. I'm going to get there. Now, when we leave the story in the New Testament of Paul, it's not over. Paul's journey is not over. He's still writing. He's in prison in Rome. But legend has it, the, the history of the Christian church has it, that he got out of prison in Rome and he made it to Spain before he eventually was crucified. Just an amazing thing. Paul says to these Romans, don't forget, that's our goal. He writes all this theology. The whole first part of Romans is part of this theological description to get them to go. As one writer says, you cannot be a good missionary without being a good theologian. And you can't be a good theologian if it doesn't lead to being a missionary. Now, I don't mean there, and we'll talk about this in a minute, that you have to go to some foreign land, although it might. The idea is that you keep it together and as you do that you helps us to see 
missions as a service of worship. Paul says, because of the grace of God given to me by God the Father, I'm a minister of Christ Jesus the Son to the nations serving as a priest of God's news. I serve as a priest in the act of worship so that the offering of the nations may be acceptable to Christ, an offering made acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. All three are at working together. Missions is a work of worship started by God, accomplished by God through His believer priest, us. And it's our offering to the Lord. John Stott, who's a great writer, theologian, said this, The highest of missionary motives is neither obedience to the Great Commission, that's important, nor love for sinners who we alienating and perishing, strong as that is, but rather zeal, burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. Missions is worship, and worship provides a motivation and power no matter what kind of guilt we might feel otherwise. There's a quote on your handout there from John Piper who I love this quote from the book, Let the Nations Be Glad, that says, Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, and I love this, is the fuel and the goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white, hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples and the greatness of God. Mission begins and ends in worship. The point there is that we work as much as we do not because of guilt, not because we have to, not because we feel bad about not doing it, but because of the worship of God leads us to do it. The third thing from this passage. They are Christ-centered people who boast only in Jesus and not of themselves. Christ-centered people. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says... Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In Romans 15 here, Paul kind of talks about that in very much the same way. He can only be proud of his work for God, but only in Christ Jesus, he says us in verse 17. In verse 18, he says, What Christ has accomplished through me to bring the nations into obedience by word and work. It was accomplished, in verse 19, by the power of the signs and wonders as the gospel advanced into new territories, by the power of the Spirit of God, which enabled him to fulfill the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Here's what's interesting. Romans 15, he knows that the people that are dedicated to the missions of Christ are going to have to be people who are in love with Jesus. In Romans 15 alone, he uses Jesus or Christ 15, or excuse me, 12 times. In Romans 15, he uses 12 times. Christ-centered radically impacts how we think, how we speak, how we act, how we live. Henry Martin was a missionary to Indian Persia. In God's mysterious providence, he was taken at age 31. Still, in those 31 years, he was a prolific writer, and he wrote this, The Spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. 
the nearer we get to him, the more intensely missionary we become. And then, isn't this just a great name? Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. I may name my next child that. We're not having any more, but if I had any more. Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf, a Moravian missionary, said this. I have but one passion. It is Christ. Christ alone. The world is the field and the field is the world. And henceforth, that country shall be my home where I can be most used in winning souls for Christ. You hear the passion in there? My prayer is that by God's grace and the work of the Spirit, FBC Gillettsville will become so Christ-centered and passionate for Jesus that people might talk to us as the Jesus people, as the Christ church. People would say, now that's a people who sound like Jesus and act like Jesus and love like Jesus. It's as if they're intoxicated with Jesus and an extension of His very life. Because when that's who we are and you see the life of Jesus, it was all about taking the gospel to the people. Great Commission Christians, number four, never lose sight of the centrality and the nature of the gospel. The book of Romans is a gospel book. And indeed, the theme is captured in Romans chapter 1. It says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Here in our text, Paul mentions the gospel three times. In verse 16, he says it's the gospel of God. In verse 19, the gospel of Christ. In verse 20, simply the gospel. He knew the power of salvation was not in him or in any man or in words, but in Jesus Christ through the Spirit of God. So the question is, well, what's the gospel? Well, some people think it's similar to what Mark Twain once said. Mark Twain said the church is just good people standing in front of good people telling them how to be good people. In typical Mark Twain kind of fashion. And unfortunately and tragically, too many people in our churches have a definition not too far from that. Just good people telling good people how to be good people. I mentioned Dr. Aiken earlier in his quote. Well, I read this week about a story where several years ago, I don't know if you've seen, but, but Dr. Billy Graham's been in the news lately and not doing well. And several years ago, Dr. Aiken and his wife Charlotte got to go meet him. Uh, there is a center for uh, evangelism, actually, uh, at Southern Seminary. That's the Billy Graham School of Evangelism. And so anytime there's a new dean or leader at Southern, they go to see Dr. Graham. Um, and so they were there, and as they were talking for several hours, Dr. Aiken just said, Dr. Graham, I've heard you say before that you believe on any given Sunday 50% of those attending church are lost. He said, now do you still believe that? And Dr. Graham looked at him and said, no, I don't believe it. He said, I think the number is much higher than that. When asked why, he said, it's because they simply don't know and haven't believed the gospel. So it asked a question then well what is it i wrote down some stuff that's on that handout for you somebody said a twitter summary that just means 140 characters or less right the gospel is the good news that king jesus died and paid the full penalty of sin rose from the dead and saves all who repent of sin and trust him there's a clear contrast you could say it it's every religion of the world can be located under one of two words do or done Christianity is a done religion. We are saved by what Christ has done for us. A declaration. The gospel is the good news that God killed His Son 
so he would not have to kill you. Or a promise, which I don't think this one made it there. The gospel is the good news that the person who has Jesus plus nothing has everything. And the person who has everything minus Jesus has nothing. You know, that, that's never more evident to me than when we're in Brazil. Eli's writing a 4-H speech. And he feels pressure on him because last year he wrote a 4-H speech and he won. And this year it's fifth grade and I've told him it's okay if you don't win. But he wants to write it on his trip to Brazil. When I think about the difference between Christians in America and Christians in Brazil, the biggest difference to me is joy. Now, I don't mean that there aren't people that have joy that are American Christians. But Brazilian Christians just have a joy that's indescribable. They have fun. They laugh. They joke. And that's during the sermons. That's not the music. I've never been to a Brazilian church that didn't have dancing in their service. They just... And it's not anything lewd or crude or inappropriate. It's just joy. They kind of believe that Psalm 150 still applies. And I've never been to a quiet Brazilian church. Now, it doesn't mean they're less reverent. It means there's joy. Here's what's remarkable to me about it. Many times that joy comes from people that that live in homes and worship in churches and work in spaces that we would be ashamed to be around. They have nothing. When I say they have nothing, I mean nothing. We joke, when we go down there, we joke about eating rice and beans. And, you know, you have rice and beans for lunch and beans and rice for supper. Do you know why they have rice and beans for lunch and and beans and rice for supper? Because it's the cheapest thing you can get. And they have it every day. We take our interpreters. We're, we're down there. We've got our American money, so we go to a nice Brazilian restaurant once while we're down there. Then we take our interpreters every time. And many of them, when they go the first trip with us, they say, I have never been to a place like this. And it's not a restaurant that you think would be high quality here. But they got Jesus. And that's all that matters. You'll sit down and talk to them about stories. Then just be overwhelmed with the stuff that goes on in their streets and what happens in their families, and they still are just joyous. They're consumed with a passion for Jesus. Here's the fifth thing. They're consumed to get the gospel to those who have never heard the name of Jesus. Now, I'm going to tell you some things that, that I've heard. Now, it's not uncommon. It happens. It's not... I mean, they're well-meaning believers. They say things like, well, the light that shines farthest is the light that shines brightest at home. Or, we have to do our Jerusalem and then everything else will take care of itself. Or, there are just as many lost people in Goodlettsville as there are in Brazil. And while those statements are well-intended, they reveal a fundamental law theologically and missiologically or with missions. First of all, the, the, the issue with missions is the, 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 the issue is not one of lostness, it's one of access. Theologically, it misses the clearly laid out strategy Paul talked about. Paul says in verse 19, this is interesting, that he had 
fulfilled his gospel ministry from Jerusalem to Illyricum. Now, y'all know where Illyricum is on the map? Anybody know where that is? It's Albania. So that fills it all in for you. I know y'all got that in your mind. It's over in Europe. Albania. In verse 20, he says, It is his ambition to preach the gospel where the name of Jesus is unknown, fulfilling a prophecy found in Isaiah 52. Then in verse 23 and 24, he makes an amazing statement. He says, I'm going to Spain. Remember, we talked about that. I'm going to Spain. I'm going to go through Rome. I'm on my way to Rome. I'll see you because I'm on my way to Spain. He says, I no longer have any room for work in these regions. I no longer have anything to do here. Now, let me ask you some questions. Do you think Paul is saying that everyone who needs to hear the gospel in those areas have heard it? No. Paul would say, I'm not saying that. Do you think he's saying that all the churches that need to be planted have been planted? No. He says, what I am saying is there is now a gospel witness there. It's not a gospel witness everywhere. And I, we, must be consumed with a passion to get the gospel to the elsewheres. To those places where the name of Christ isn't known. Listen, I I understand there are lost people all around us. In fact, there are more lost people in the Nashville area today than there have ever been. That's not hard to figure out, both number and percentage. But most of those people have access to the gospel. That doesn't mean we don't abandon. That doesn't mean we abandon. We don't do anything. We still work. But it doesn't mean that we forego people that have no access because we've got people that have heard it three or four times. It's a mission strategy that should guide us as individuals. It should guide our church. It should drive our state convention. It should drive our denomination to the ends of the earth. By the way, in Acts 1.8, he's not saying take care of Jerusalem, get it all done, and then you move to the next step. That's an all at once. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth is not get your Jerusalem taken care of. Then when you get all that handled, then you move to Judea. It is all. And here's the last thing about Great Commission people. They see themselves as missionary people with everyone doing their part to see the mission completed. I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. I don't know if I put it on there or not for you. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Well, that's tough, isn't it? Now, un- wrongly understood, that could be a spiritual get- guilt trip kind of statement. In fact, some of you are feeling guilty right now. But rightly understood, it's liberating. That's who we are in Christ. That's our ultimate goal. Paul wants to go to Spain to take the gospel of those that have never heard. What does he want from the church in Rome? He wants to be helped, to be assisted. It's like William Carey who in 1792 told some British Baptists, I just need you to hold the ropes. I'm going. I love that meeting where Carey looks at him and they say, we don't think you should go. And he says, whether you think so or not, I'm going. I just need you to hold the ropes. Paul knew. William Carey knew and we should know. Not everyone goes to the nations. I'm not telling you tonight, go sign up and become one. But we are called to pray, to give. To go as if we're called. Because we are. Getting church planners and evangelists and missionaries to the underserved areas and unreached peoples is the holy responsibility of every one of us. No exceptions. No exemptions. I don't know whether you realize this or not, but the number of missionaries in our denomination is declining. And it's not because we don't have people wanting to go. It's we can't fund those that want to go.
It appears that instead of holding the ropes back home, we've let go. They're letting them go. Consequences are being felt around the world. Oswald Smith was blunt and to the point. He says, if God wills the evangelization of the world and you refuse to support missions, then you are opposed to the will of God. If you're waiting for some softer statements, they're not coming. So here's some questions to consider, all right? Do I model the Great Commission Christianity before my children and grandchildren? Do we talk about the nations? Do I talk about sharing the gospel? Do I talk about evangelization, witnessing? Do I pray that God would call? Now, here's a big one right here. Do I pray that God would call my children and grandchildren to be international missionaries? Some of you say, preacher, you can just stop because ain't, we ain't going farther than that. Do I have a mission savings account for my children or grandchildren? So that when they get ready to go on a mission trip, I'm ready to give to that. Do I have the work of my Lord in my will? Am I generous, even sacrificial in giving to my church and giving to Annie Armstrong? Not, not Those of you that aren't familiar with Southern Baptist life, there's not a real Annie Armstrong anymore or Lottie. But it's the, I mean, those ladies are gone to be with the Lord. But it's the offerings in their name, right? Annie Armstrong is for North American missions. Lottie Moon is for international missions. Have I adopted a people group internationally and here in North America? I'll tell you about that a little bit more in a minute. Have I gone on a short-term trip to see just how lost the world is? Listen, we're, we're in the planning stages right now of our big trip this summer. We're not going to Brazil. Some of you say, I'm never going to go out of the country. You don't have an excuse. We are going to Los Angeles. It is not out of the country, no matter what you think. Okay? We're in discussion right now with the leader, the coordinator of all Southern Baptist church plants. Out there, they're called Great Commission Baptist, by the way. Great Commission Baptist plants in the Los Angeles area, and there are many developing. We're going to go out there. We're going to help one of those churches. Maybe just one time, maybe start a partnership where we're helping them. Do I regularly pray for the nations? In a recent edition of Revive Magazine of Life Action Ministries, Tom Eliff, who is, um, was at that time president of the IMB, expressed a dire need for God to send revival in order to get the job done. He said, so what is the answer? It is for God's people to respond to the Great Commission. It is here that we find the utter necessity of revival. During periods of revival, there is a great resurgence of interest in missions, willingness to commit a lifetime to mission service. Every great missions movement in Christian history was born out of some type of spiritual awakening among believers. Today... We see some evidence of God stirring hearts. A new generation has interest in going to the ends of the earth, giving their lives to reach the most remote corners. But the sad fact is, that is so distressing to me, is that there are now far more people who are willing to go than there are resources being able to send them. God must stir not only those willing to go, but also the hearts of those who are willing to help them go financially, as well as the hearts of moms and dads who will let them go and the passions of people who will pray for those who are going. And I am be alone. We ended last year with over 600 qualified individuals who applied to give their lives to global missions that we could not resource to send. Here's the simple truth. Apart from revival in the church, the pool of people willing to be sent and the pool of people willing to send them is insufficient and shrinking. 
Only the Holy Spirit can stir up the supply needed in our churches to meet these needs. What a tragedy it would be if we lost our opportunity to play a significant role in God's plan to say. How tragic to forfeit such vast opportunity because of our unwillingness to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Let me just say something and then I'm going to close. God's still going to accomplish his task. The question is whether we're going to be part of it and get to enjoy being a part of it. The United States is quickly heading towards, for a long time, we have been the country that has sent the most missionaries into the world. We are not as far ahead as we used to be, and there are a couple of places that are about to catch us. South Korea is sending people here almost every day to be missionaries to us. The Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It is a wartime gospel command to be obeyed. By His grace and for His glory alone, may we be an obedient people. May we be Great Commission believers until the day we see coming in heaven a rider on a white horse. Then and only then will we know our mission is over. I wanted you to have notes tonight because I gave you lots of stuff. And this is the kind of thing that ain't going to make a difference in one night just hearing it. It's going to be a lifetime of devotion to it. I want you to take it and put it in a place where you'll look at it. I know some of you that's called the back seat of the car and you'll never see it again. All right? Put it in a place you'll look at it. I want you to think about what does it mean to be a Great Commission believer. I've got another handout for you. And I'm going to give this and we'll be gone. Okay? So I'm going to pray and then I'll hand this out. And these are eight practical ways to be a Great Commission Christian. Now, some of these will not fit everybody. For instance, if you don't have kids in school, number two will not apply to you. But if you do, it will. But it's just some things. And this is actually from Dr. Chuck Lawless. And I've put where you can find this online. And in a few minutes, actually, I'm going to post this on my Facebook wall. And so if you wanted to read it there from your computer or share it or whatever, it'll be there. He wrote this last summer. Um, There's some very practical ways to begin to get your mind focused on Great Commission kind of things. All right? I want you to take that and look at it. My goal over the last three weeks is just to remind us of the most important thing facing us at all times, whether it's the new year or the middle of summer or Christmas, that this is it. And when we begin to forget it, we forget why we're here.